Hey listeners, on May 13th, we invite you to join us and Reed Hoffman for a new virtual strategy session presented in alliance with Capital One Business. You'll hear insights from fellow entrepreneurs about how to be at the forefront of leading change with AI. So go to mastersofscale.com AI strategy right now to register for free. Again, that's mastersofscale.com AI strategy. Looking forward to seeing you there. I grew up in a family of fishermen. French Sicilian family where food is at the center of everything we do. To me, that mission resonated deeply and I saw a very big opportunity. This is a $1.4 trillion industry we're talking about, but this is also an industry that has been pretty late to moving online. I see Instacart as a core technology partner to all of our grocery retailers. I think Facebook, my team was maybe 6,000 people. And if you want to operate well with a team of 6,000 people, you need to inspire them. So storytelling and communication is important. The reason I love food is that it really touches the soul. And I think this company needs to have soul in order to feed the world. That's Fiji Simo, CEO of Instacart and former head of the core Facebook app. Fiji took over at Instacart this past summer, taking the reins from founder Apoorva Mehta, who appeared on this show last spring to talk about Instacart's incredible COVID-fueled growth. I'm Bob Safian, former editor of Fast Company, founder of the Flux Group and host of Masters of Scale Rapid Response. I wanted to talk to Fiji because succeeding a founder is always fraught territory, particularly for a first-time CEO. Fiji's approach has been to emphasize an evolved company mission, one that focuses on helping grocery retailers as a technology provider in their competition with Amazon. She's also diversified Instacart's leadership ranks, adding more women executives, including to the board, to an extent that few tech businesses have. As for her experience at Facebook, it's not something she's running away from, she explains. Instead, it's something she's looking to draw lessons from. Ultimately, she says, she's looking to build Instacart into a company that, as she puts it, touches the soul. We'll start the show in a moment. Afterward, from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. I woke up in the middle of the night because I had this nightmare that we were front page news that we've done the stupidest mistake of our life by making this pivot. <laughs> That's Aparna Saran, Chief Marketing Officer for Capital One Business. And she's recalling a moment from her previous position at Capital One when she was heading up a team designing a new business card. We had just made the decision to go all in and sunset the prior version of the product, which was honestly the cash cow for our business. When we made that decision within a senior leadership meeting, as someone who had been on the journey to build this out for five plus years, it was really exciting. But by the time the weekend hit, I started to feel the responsibility and the pressure. We are taking this big bet on something that I've built. Perhaps you've been there. You've made a pivotal decision, and then panic sets in. How would Aparna calm her butterflies and steer her team through this pivot? We'll find out later in the show. It's all part of the Refocus Playbook, a special series where Capital One Business 
highlights stories of business owners and leaders using one of Reed's theories of entrepreneurship. Today's Playbook Insight, have multiple plan Bs. I'm Bob Safian, and I'm here with Fiji Simo, the CEO of Instacart. Fiji, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. So you are fairly new to the CEO post, new to Instacart. You took over just a few months ago, recruited by founder of Porva Meta away from Facebook, where you oversaw the core Facebook app. What convinced you to make the shift over? Well, you know, leaving Facebook after 10 years was a hard decision, as you can imagine. For many years, I was passionate about Facebook's mission of connecting the world. But I joined the board of Instacart in January of this year and kind of fell in love with the mission of the company, which is giving people access to food and more time to enjoy together. You know, I grew up in a family of fishermen. French Sicilian family where food is at the center of everything we do. It's how we celebrate. It's how we share love. And so to me, that mission resonated deeply. And I saw a very big opportunity with a company to take it to the next level. So that became very exciting and convinced me to join. Facebook's been under some scrutiny these days. Was that something you saw coming? <laughs> Facebook has always been under some scrutiny for the last couple of years. So no, didn't see this particular with a scrutiny coming. But, you know, I think Facebook is always going to be a company that attracts a lot of scrutiny. I think it's a good thing given the impact that they have on the world. Well, maybe we'll talk about that a little more later. But I want to ask you a little more about Instacart. Instacart's been known as a consumer app, but there seems to be increasing emphasis as an enterprise business is like an operating system for the grocery industry. You now partner with more than 700 retailers, nearly 65,000 stores from Aldi to Wegmans. Is your vision for Instacart different than a Porva's? What's changed with you in charge now? Yeah, I think the big realization is that we are much more than just a consumer app. A lot of people know us, obviously, for the Instacart app, and that's going to continue to be a big part of the company. But we also power the e-commerce operation and the fulfillment of a lot of what's well, largest retailers. And I think we want to continue deepening these relationships. This is a $1.4 trillion industry we're talking about. Grocery is obviously a very large portion of commerce, but this is also an industry that has been pretty late to moving online and to the digitization of commerce. And so I see Instacart as a core technology partner to all of our grocery retailers in helping them move their business online. And the reason that's important is because there is a giant with Amazon entering the grocery space, which has very deep pockets, a lot of technological know-how, and grocery retailers need to compete with this giant by giving them the technologies to do so in a way that is just more manageable for the level of investment that they're able to make. We can help a lot of the incumbents that have beloved brands compete in this new world. And so they can't individually make the kind of investments that you can make across the full industry. Exactly. And we've seen that kind of over and over again with different services, whether it's, you know, 
building a very deep e-commerce platform, whether it's getting to a fulfillment cost to do online deliveries that is cheap enough to scale. Very recently, we acquired a company called Caper AI, which does smart cards. That's a technology that Amazon spent, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars developing for themselves. And that's a cost that's pretty prohibitive for any of our grocers to invest. But because we can offer that technology to all of our grocers, we are able to make that investment up front and hopefully take down the cost of these cards to a point where grocers will want to deploy them at scale in all of their stores. Grocery shopping has gone from 2% online to 10% online, which is enormous growth. You expect it to expand to 30% over the next decade, but that still leaves 70% of the shopping in store, right? So it sounds like in your alliance with sort of these brick and mortar grocers, you're helping them not just with their online experience, but with that in-store experience too, trying to upgrade that. That's correct. And that's because fundamentally we need to start with consumer needs. And when you talk to consumers, they're not thinking about online and in-store as two completely different experiences. They're thinking about their relationship with Kroger, their relationship with Publix, their favorite supermarkets. And that relationship needs to kind of seamlessly adapt to whatever the consumer wants, whether it's, you know, going and getting groceries in store, whether it's picking them up, whether it's getting them delivered. And we think that in the future, the key thing that grocers need to develop is an understanding of who their consumers are and how to best serve them. And as a result, if we can deal digitize a lot of their in-store operations, we are going to be able to help them provide that really personalized experience, not just online, but also in-store. With Caper, for example, it's not just a smart card that allows you to bypass checkout. It's also a card that has a screen, a digital screen, where you can offer a personalized experience. You know, if you swipe your loyalty card, for example, and we know you're gluten-free on that screen, we can suggest you some new gluten-free cookies. We can show you where to find them in the store. We can suggest you new recipes. And so these are highly engaging experiences, deeply personalized, shouldn't be reserved for an online experience, it can also happen within the store. You also recently acquired an Australian company called Foodstorm that's an ordering system. Is that also for the in-store experience, the bridging of the in-store and the out-store? It's about the bridging. What Foodstorm allows you to do is, as a consumer, place an order for meals from grocers. And as a grocer, it allows you to receive this order and prepare the meal ahead of time so that the consumer can pick it up or get it delivered. And that's really important because prepared food is a higher profit margin for grocers. But again, it's an experience that they didn't really know how to convert to an online experience. It was very manual. You usually had to go into the store and just wait in line for your food to be prepared. And with this technology, we enable them to have kind of an online order ahead system that works across our marketplace as well as their own and operated websites. And so that line between getting something delivered from my favorite restaurant and getting something delivered from my grocery is blurring in this future. 
It is, and I think grocers have a really big advantage over restaurants. I think if you look at the prepared meals from grocers, they tend to be cheaper usually, and they tend to be on the healthier side. So this is something that we want to really partner with our grocers to help them develop. Working in these multi-sided marketplaces that you're in, they're really complicated. Is your primary allegiance to the consumers or to these brick and mortar grocers? Like, how do you think about that relationship and that priority? We are a four-sided marketplace. We have consumers, grocers, CPGs, which are advertising on the platform, and shoppers. So it is a complex business. And that was part of the appeal for me. I, I really do love complex marketplaces. There is this question in complex marketplaces of which way do you lean? And I think it's kind of a false dichotomy because the reason our grocers rely on us is because we have an understanding of the consumers. And so if we kind of lost track of the consumer side, we would be providing a worse service to our grocers. And meanwhile, vice versa, if we don't serve our grocers well, or we serve our consumers poorly. So I really think that the magic of these businesses is to keep the marketplace kind of in equilibrium by serving all the sides and making sure that all the sides kind of reinforce each other. There's been an explosion lately of new entries in this ultra-fast delivery for groceries. It kind of reminds me a little of the dot-com boom, where free 10, 15-minute delivery outfits proliferated and then all went bust. Is ultra-fast like this sustainable, or is it like a sort of customer acquisition loss leader proposition? <laughs> so let me unpack your question a bit. I think there is a real consumer need for speed. And, you know, in the commerce market, betting against speed is always a bad idea. <laughs> and so if you've used some of these services, you know, when you have an instantaneous need and you're really missing this one item to cook dinner, or if you're like me and it's 10 p.m. and you're really craving chocolate ice cream, <laughs> there's really something magical about, you know, someone coming to your door in 15 minutes. Now, how to serve it is a real question. And, you know, we are seeing certainly a ton of activity in the space with a lot of startups entering the space. And this is a hard business. I mean, online grocery delivery in general is a hard business. And it takes a lot of scale to make the unit economics work. And so I do believe that, you know, a lot of startups are going to try and fail because they really are going to need to get to a certain scale for a model to work. So the way we are planning on addressing it is not by doing what these companies are doing, but instead by partnering with our retailers to offer this delivery in 30 to 15 minutes. We have already rolled out one of these partnerships with Kroger, with Kroger Delivery Now, and then with Publix, with Publix Quick Picks, which allows you to get a subset of the Kroger selection. The public selection is less than 30 minutes. And that's great because for a lot of people, they actually do want the selection. And a lot of these startups don't offer much selection. I think over time to address 15 minutes, you need to get even closer to the consumer and beyond the network of stores that, you know, large retailers have. And so that might mean, you know, developing nano-fulfillment centers, but we would only do it in partnership with our retailers, never by owning inventory ourselves, because we fundamentally don't want to compete with our retailers. Instead, we want to give them the technologies and the fulfillment capabilities to compete with these startups that are really coming after a piece of their business. 
And I guess as consumers, once we get used to speed, we just don't want to go back. A key point you're making is just where are the consumer expectations going to get set? And, you know, a lot of the discussions I'm having with our grocery partners is, you know, a lot of these innovations are coming, whether it's smart cards, you know, coming from Amazon, whether it's 15 minute delivery coming from all of these startups. We want to be their partners to address all of these consumer trends in a way that works within their core business. We'll be back in a moment. After a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. There was panic that set in that night because I didn't want to let people down. We're back with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was recalling the time she woke up in a cold sweat, terrified that the new product she had been working on might fail. So the next morning, she sat down and wrote an email. It was Sunday morning and I said, you know what, I'm going to just like share this with my peers was very emotional. It was like sort of a cry for help. Aparna realized that if the new product didn't take off, she needed a plan B, preferably multiple plan Bs. I'm inviting them to be the thought partners so that we are mitigating as much risk as possible and we have contingency plans in place as we make this move. You'd write something like this and your heart is pounding, should I send this? It was a super vulnerable moment for me. But then I was like, I'm going to just send this. Like, what's the worst that will happen? It can't be worse than being on the front page of the newspaper. So she held her breath and hit send. What happened next would surprise even her. We'll hear about that later in the show. It's all part of Capital One Business's Spotlight on Business Leaders, following Reed's Refocus Playbook. Before the break, we heard Instacart CEO Fiji Simo talk about how she's adjusting the company's mission, focusing on helping grocery retailers in their competition with Amazon. Now Fiji talks about the lessons she's applying at Instacart from her days at Facebook, where she oversaw 6,000 people. She also talks about why it's been a priority for her to increase gender diversity at Instacart. Fiji emphasizes that she believes Instacart's brand and culture need to have a soul. And that for her personally, the primary goal is to generate impact she can be proud of. You helped build Facebook into an enormous ad platform. Instacart has some advertising business on this platform, but part of the plan is to expand that as well. Yes? Yes. So a lot of what I like about the Instacart ad business is that it's very close to the point of sale. It's literally inside the cart, giving advertisers the ability to say, hey, you should consider this product and add it to your cart. And so, you know, it's very, very measurable, much lower down the funnel than other platforms. It's also a way to kind of benefit the whole ecosystem. And in the case of advertising, it helps us bring the cost of delivery down for consumers, makes them exposed to deals that they wouldn't have otherwise been exposed to. And then similarly with retailers, it actually helps us have larger basket sizes because people end up buying things they wouldn't have bought otherwise, and also reduce the cost of online delivery for retailers. I remember the early days at Facebook when ads were first put on and it was like, well, this is a way to support a free service for people to use. That's what advertising does for Facebook. And it sounds like you're saying ads can sort of improve certain kinds of affordability. Although I guess at the same time, if my cart size is going up, I'm not really spending less money as a shopper. 
Well, I think you're spending less on the cost of delivery itself. I mean, when we look at our model, our financial model, we are going to be able to reinvest a lot more into the consumer experience and lower the actual delivery cost because we have an ad revenue stream. For many years, online grocery delivery was seen very much as a luxury. And I think COVID changed that because it became a necessity, but we still need to drive the cost down. And so this advertising revenue stream is going to help us do that. We obviously have a lot more initiatives to drive costs down. We're one of the first online platforms to offer the ability for people to pay with EBT SNAP, which is a government program for low-income families to get access to food. We are adding a deals tab in our app where you can see all of the deals available. And we're also offering 5% cash back if you go pick up your order at a grocery store and if you're an Express member so that you can save even more money. And so through a variety of initiatives like that, we hope to make the service just much more affordable. Hmm. When it comes to building an ad platform, are there lessons from what you experienced at Facebook that you can apply here? So the platform is very different in that, again, you know, it's very close to the point of sale. It's very focused on the CPG industries. But of course, there are a lot of lessons that apply. I mean, the first one is obviously, I want to build this advertising platform with privacy at the center from the very beginning. And that's something that matters a lot to me. Second thing is that we know from our Facebook days how much measurement matters and showing all of our advertising that the ads were delivering results and were really driving sales. And so we're investing a lot in building up a measurement roadmap. Do you have any regrets about your time at Facebook? Well, I think it's pretty clear that there are some things that we got wrong and that we didn't anticipate and we should have anticipated them and been much more proactive about figuring out how the product could be abused. We thought about all of the great use cases of the product, all of the amazing things that could happen when you connect people. And we didn't think hard enough about all of the abuse that could come with it. And so definitely I do regret that. However, I also think that the company corrected that very aggressively. When I look back at the last, I would say, three to four years and the massive investment that they've made in security, safety, really understanding abuse, I do think it's a company that's taking that much more seriously. So you've recently gathered some former colleagues from Facebook as part of your executive team. Carolyn Everson, your chief operating officer, Asia Jama, who joined, I guess, a few months before you. Was that a concerted effort to bring the band together, so to speak, or was, or was that just coincidence? No, it was pretty much, I mean, not entirely coincidence, but I would say Asha joined Instacart and at the same time as I joined the board, we obviously developed a strong relationship during that time. And then when I was making my decision to come on as a CEO, she was actually a very big reason for why I came. And then, you know, bringing in Carolyn, she kind of left Facebook at the same time. So it was very timely. And obviously when she left Facebook, I was still in the process of making my decision for joining. And when we talked, we realized, okay, it would be a fun thing to go do this together. 
So with you and these other additions to the executive team, Instacart now has a majority of women in the top roles at the company. And in mid-October, you added two new female leaders to the board of directors. Is that gender representation strategic? How much of a priority is it for you? So it's obviously strategic because I think every company would benefit from having diversity. But even more importantly, in the case of Instacart, if you look at our customer base, 80% of our customers are women. If you look at our shoppers, the people who go pick the items in store and then deliver them to customers, 70% of them are women. So I deeply believe that the management team and the entire company all the way to the board need to represent the people that we do serve. This fall, separate from Instacart, as if you didn't have enough going on already, you helped launch a new foundation focused on women's health issues called Metrodora. Do I have that right? You have that right. that right. Yes. Now, this grows out of your own experience with neuroimmune conditions? Yes. So two years ago, I was diagnosed with a neuroimmune condition called POTS. Neuroimmune means that it's a condition that's the intersection of the nervous system and the immune system. And the thing that's interesting about these conditions is that they affect millions of people. We think tens of millions of people in the U.S. And about 80% of these patients are women. And when I started digging into these conditions, I realized that first, the type of care that women receive for this condition is really subpar. Most of the time, these conditions affect multiple body systems, but because medicine is so fragmented, a lot of patients just bounce around from specialist to specialist without anyone really looking at them as a whole patient. And so that's one of the things that we're going to solve with the Metrodora Clinic, where we're going to bring together multiple specialties of medicine to treat the patient collaboratively and look at them as a whole patient. It's going to be a 50,000 square feet facility in Salt Lake City, so we're very excited about opening up next year. And then when I looked at the research side, it was also really striking that there wasn't a lot of research going on in the space. There wasn't patient database, there wasn't a biobank. There were really no collaborations between academia and the private sector. And so with the Institute, we're really bringing together the best researchers with the best biotech companies to accelerate research and hopefully get to cures much faster. Does it frustrate you? I guess it must have frustrated you when you were facing this treatment yourself, that these issues that impact women are not given the same priority. So it's incredibly frustrating, (laughs) but I turned my frustration into action, and that's why I decided to create this foundation. I think these problems are eminently solvable if we just put together the right people around the table. And I was very fortunate to uh, meet my co-founders, Dr. Laura Pace and Dr. James Emp. So a bunch of businesses that became darlings when the pandemic hit, Zoom, Peloton, gaming companies and so on, they've seen some backlash as the lockdowns subside. How do you think about Instacart's business adjusting coming out of COVID? Yeah, so during 2020, we grew 4x in one year, which is 
crazy. I mean, it was five years of growth into one. And so when I joined the board in January of this year, you know, I fully expected that this year was going to see a little bit of a decline. And in fact, we're going to end the year still growing double digits year over year. People have just discovered that groceries can now be delivered and they don't want to go back. And so I expect that we're going to see kind of a decade of growth and deepening of this online penetration. The companies indicated that an IPO's on its roadmap. You went through the private to public market transition at Facebook. How did that experience there impact your approach to an IPO at Instacart? Well, my Facebook experience uh, was pretty funny. I was put in charge of the team that was supposed to crack monetizing mobile right after the IPO when the stock was tanking. And I would turn on the TV every day and CNBC would say that there was no way Facebook would ever monetize mobile. (laughs) And uh, I remember being pretty stressed out at the time, (laughs) but we figured it out and, you know, we built a big business out of it. I would say in terms of Instacart, of course, we aspire to be a public company at some point. But for me, you know, coming in as a new CEO and having this kind of new vision and renewed ambition about being a retailer enablement platform and really helping all of our retailers uh, compete with Amazon, compete with all of the new startups that you talked about. I want to continue developing that vision. I want to continue rolling out new services that point to where we're going before we decide to go public. But, you know, this is something that we'll get to at some point. You ran a very big business at Facebook. What's different about being the CEO compared to your previous job? It's a good question. I think my previous job, when I was leading the Facebook app for the last three years, prepared me very well for the fact that you have to think about multiple business lines. I mean, you know, Facebook app had like 25 different businesses packed into one app. And so that taught me, you know, how to operate at this scale, how to understand complexity, how to make like really important trade-offs at that scale. But Facebook was not as much of a partnership company as Instacart is. And so I would say the big change coming to Instacart that's incredibly rewarding to me is spending a lot of time with our partners, spending time with retailers, spending time with our advertisers, spending time with our shoppers to understand what they need. I would say it's a much more externally facing role. So many folks who run big parts of businesses but are not the CEOs don't get the same attention, but maybe their role or their task isn't as much about the storytelling about what the business is as opposed to the operating of the business. You know, I think I still at Facebook had to do a fair amount of storytelling because, you know, my team was maybe 6,000 people by the time I left. And if you want to operate well with a team of 6,000 people, you need to inspire them. You need them to understand where you're going. You need them to understand priorities. So storytelling and communication is important in both of these roles. I think in CEO seat, it tends to be that you tell that story a little bit more to the outside world than to your own team. But I always knew that refining that story and being really crystal clear on where we're going Going, it's actually a big part of being a, a good operator. Hmm. What's at stake for Instacart right now and for you personally? I think what's at stake for Instacart is 
continuing to really deepen our relationship with retailers and prove to them that we can be their best ally to grow their business. And it's also transforming the consumer experience because when you open Instacart right now, it's a very utilitarian app. I think there is a deeper relationship that Instacart can build with consumers, a more emotional relationship, because fundamentally, a lot of our consumers are, you know, families and households that are just trying to get life done. And food is a big part of getting life done. If we can help them with more than just grocery delivery, if we can help inspire them, if we can help them even long term with their health and how food can contribute to that, I think that can be a very inspiring part of the mission of the company. You mentioned what's at stake for me. I really want to be proud of all of the things that we do here. And part of being proud of that means helping other businesses grow, helping shoppers find earning opportunities that help them with their life, and then helping our consumers with, you know, all the aspects that I just mentioned. And over time, potentially even improving their health, which would merge nicely with my other interests that we touched on. You are passionate about food. I am very passionate about food. I can talk about Nutella in very passionate terms. <laughs> Are you a cook as well? No, my husband is a great at baking. So I'm more of a food critic than I am a cook. <laughs> but I'm, I'm happy to test anything. <laughs> well, this has been great. Are there any lessons we haven't touched on that you take away from your first hundred days so far that you're coming back to or looking forward to? I think one of the very important things that we haven't touched on is that you can only achieve a mission that's ambitious like that if you have employees that you can take care of in a very deep way. And so a lot of what I'm spending my time on as well is really understanding what is the type of culture that we want to build inside the company. And so we're in the process of really rethinking our values, really rethinking how we are going to treat each other inside the company and how we're going to show up to our partners. The reason I love food is that it really touches the soul. And I think this company needs to have soul in order to feed the world. And I'm working a lot on that soul. Well, this has been great, Fiji. Thank you so much for taking the time and talking with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This was absolutely lovely. And now, a final word from our brand partner, Capital One Business. Throughout the day, text messages and emails kept pouring in. Whatever you need, just let us know. We're back one more time with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was telling us about a Sunday morning email she fired off in a moment of panic. Minutes later, her inbox was overflowing. And the support she found wasn't just emotional, it was practical. We talked about detailed contingency plans and we created our go-to-market strategy. Before we are in full rollout mode, we are at stage gates so that we could test and quickly learn and iterate. And within a matter of like six months, as we were rolling things out channel by channel, those stage gates would allow us to pivot if we saw something that we didn't like. That day, Aparna learned a lesson that stayed with her. Having multiple plan Bs doesn't just expand your options. It gives you new opportunities. The best way to pivot is actually 
open doors for thoughtful conversations because humility in knowing that you actually don't know everything as well as the empathy in knowing that disruption is always drastic and abrupt helps you go through that pivot with other people in a very different way. Capital One Business is proud to support entrepreneurs and leaders working to scale their impact from Fortune 500s to first-time business owners. For more resources to help drive your business forward, visit CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. That's CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. Masters of Scale Rapid Response is a Wait What original. The show is recorded remotely using sanitized audio gear. I'm your Rapid Response host, Bob Safian. Host for Masters of Scale is Reed Hoffman. Our executive producers are June Cohen and Darren Triff. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Our producers are Jordan McLeod, Christina Gonzalez, and Marie McCoy-Thompson. Our music director is Ryan Holiday. Original music and sound design by Daniel Nissenbaum and the Holiday Brothers. Audio editing by Keith J. Nelson, Stephen Davies, Andrew Nault, and Mike Gallagher. Mixing and mastering by Aaron Bastinelli. Special thanks to Emily McManus, Sarah Sandman, Kelsey Capitano, Tim Cronin, Charlie Manessis, Adam Heiner, Anna Pizzino, Ben Richardson, Mina Kurosawa, Saida Sapieva, and Colin Howard. Become a member of Masters of Scale to get access to a year's worth of courses and content on the Masters of Scale courses app. Find out more at mastersofscale.com slash membership. Visit mastersofscale.com slash rapid response to find the transcript for this episode and be sure to subscribe to our email newsletter.